Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Halper. And I'm Aaron Metic. We're so excited to have you guys joining this show. And make sure that you subscribe to us on Substack or Locals. And that's at usefulidiots.substack.com or usefulidiots.locals.com. And you get great bonus content, extended interviews, uh, and access to other important things for your life. And if you don't know about it, make sure you're tuned in on Monday morning where we have really the hottest show on Monday morning uh, in the world. It's called it's called Monday morning. And it's where we watch the Sunday morning news shows that you don't have to. And it's a hit. It's a viral hit. Yeah, yeah. It's a social media hit. It's a YouTube hit. So uh, tune in. Yeah, you can find that at YouTube.com slash Useful Idiots. And you should definitely be subscribing there. And you can also watch us on Rumble and subscribe there. Also, you make, make sure you check out our Thursday throwdown segments. And that is your midweek dose of media madness. And also you can join us at the Absurd Arena where we chat with you live on Substack. All right, so let's get to our four basic food groups. And what do we have from you, Aaron, for Democrats Suck? Well, for Democrats Suck, we're going to go to senior Biden administration official Victoria Nuland. Remember, she's the one who was caught on tape plotting a coup in Ukraine in 2014, uh, who most recently bragged to the Senate about how great it is that the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline is a hunk of metal at the bottom of the sea. Well, here she is now seeming to claim that the U.S. has authorized Ukraine to go and try to take Crimea back from Russia. Crimea is the territory in Ukraine that Russia annexed in 2014 after the U.S. backed coup. Uh, the majority of Crimeans, according to polls, including U.S. government polls, want to be a part of Russia. But never mind that. Newland here seems to be saying that the U.S. wants Ukraine to take it back and is giving it the weapons to do so. So here she is speaking to the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Good. I mean, because I there was a piece in the New York Times uh, mid-January, uh, Helene Cooper and Eric Schmidt. Again, when you quote unnamed administration officials, I realize it's I've been right. I you know this is isn't my first rodeo. I I understand that who said that our reluctance to provide Ukraine with weapons to strike Crimea directly is softening. And the article goes on is that the logic, according to these officials, is only when Ukraine shows Russia it might lose Crimea will Putin get serious about negotiating. So I'm going to go back to the way I framed this before, which is that there is an a drone base in Crimea where the drones that the Iranians have yes, given yeah. Russia are being launched from. There are command and control sites in Crimea that are essential for uh, Russia's hold on all of the territory, including the land bridge. There are um, mass military installations on Crimea that Russia has turned into essential logistics and back office depots for this war. Those are legitimate targets. Ukraine is hitting them and we are supporting that. I don't know if you noticed this, but uh, as Aaron David Miller was asking her a question, he was referencing this New York Times article from January where it was reported that the Biden administration is increasingly coming around to the idea of giving U Ukraine the weapons it needs to hit Crimea. And Newland was smiling <laughs> during that. I think that was maybe a recognition on her part that she was one of the anonymous sources for that yeah. story because she had a hard time containing her glee. But really, I mean, what this is about here is is this is now Russia has formally annexed Crimea. It considers it 
to be part of Russian territory. Uh, it used to be a part of Russia, basically, but in the 1950s, it was transferred to Ukraine by the Soviet premier as sort of an administrative mood, a move. And um, according to U.S. government polls, the majority of Crimeans want to be a part of Russia. But never mind that. I mean, that's not allowed to be discussed here. And uh, if this is something that is seriously being undertaken, then this is a major this would be a major escalation of the war on top of all the carnage that has already occurred. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she is. uh, Her face does say a lot. Amazing. She's still in office. I mean, given all that she's done to bring this Ukraine crisis to where it is, uh, she's still in a position to make decisions. It's uh, it's pretty incredible. Well, she's really shattered that glass ceiling as a, a neocon woman. She shattered the ceiling, and now it's uh, laying at the bottom of the sea. Yeah. That's yeah. How, yeah. All right. Uh, what do we have for Republican suck? So for Republican suck, we have a, an interesting story about uh, Virginia Republicans, and they basically uh, voted to shelve a bill that would have pro- prohibited authorities from using a search warrant to seize menstrual data stored on a computer or other electronic devices. So... This is a kind of weird phrase. I wouldn't have used menstrual data. I would say period tracker apps because that's what this is. So basically, people are worried now with the um, repeal of Roe v. Wade that authorities are going to be able to use women's data from their period tracking apps. And that's where you keep track of when your period is to try to figure out if women have had abortions. And that's a pretty scary thing to do. And so Virginia was trying to pass a bill that would have prevented authorities from doing that, from using a search warrant to do that. And the Virginia legislature voted against that bill. Well, uh, another reminder that Republicans suck. Yeah. And are all up in your business, despite pretending to be pro small government. They want to be all up in your period tracking apps, too. All right. So for Isn't That Weird, we have a new Guinness World Record. And here's the headline, man with world's longest tongue uses it to paint. He holds the Guinness world record for the longest tongue on the planet, which is an incredible 3.97 inches or 10.1 centimeters long. You can obviously lick your nose. I mean, that would be an obvious one. Mm-hmm. Yes. You can lick your elbow. I can, yeah. The most impressive one, which we've been talking about all morning, is yeah. the art, the fact that your tongue yes. can paint. Licasso. Yes, I was given the nickname Lacasso for my artwork. Well, you're going to demonstrate this for us now. You have I to am, yeah. wrap your tongue in cling film. Yeah, safety first. So always wrap my tongue in cling film, and then I'll add the paint, and I'll, and I'll get to work. How did you discover you could do this? Well, I saw a YouTube video of a man painting with his tongue. I thought, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So I thought I would try it, but I want to put cling film, so that way... It's safer. Does, your, does it get tired? Mm. Maybe she should have asked him these questions mm. before okay. he mm. covered his tongue and mm. good stamina. Saran mm. Ram. There's, a, there's an air of good. the Simpsons about all of these, isn't there? I mean, I, I like the style, actually. I do like the style. Um, I'm very small. <laughs> I'm sort of like, I'm like a parrot on your like shoulder. A, a little pea head. I'm almost a gopher. <laughs> Ooh, almost there's an idea. Me. So what he did there is he drew the uh, people who were interviewing him. He painted them, sorry, with his tongue. Now, nice work, too. Nice it was, work. yeah. yeah. I, I don't know why they cut away. They didn't show him actually painting it, though. They just showed the product. I wonder if, if he had to try it a bunch of times or something. Like, maybe he's not as skilled a painter as he likes to claim. There's a Lacasso cover-up going on. Yeah, yeah. We demand answers. We demand answers, yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, assuming that he is the uh, 
tongue painter that he claims to be. Impressive work, and uh, I salute Lacasso. Yeah, Lacasso. As he calls Which, himself. When when he said it in a British accent, I thought he was saying something else. He said Lacasso. I thought mm. he was saying like a hole. All right, well, that's pretty weird. What do you have for Isn't That Terrible? Okay, so for Isn't That Terrible, we have a story. It's about Marco Goeke, who was until very recently the ballet director at Hanover's main opera house. Uh, but then he had a kind of problematic interaction with a dance critic. So the dance critic, whose name is Viebke Hooster, had written a negative review of Goke's ballet. She wrote that, quote, audiences would feel like they're either, quote, going insane or, quote, being killed by boredom, end quote. So when the ballet director ran into the critic at the opera house, he asked her why she'd written a negative review about him. But that's not newsworthy, obviously. What is newsworthy is that uh, when he didn't like her response, he rubbed a bag of dog feces into her face. And the feces apparently came from his pet, Dashund Gustav, who is apparently 14 and a half years old. And that's relevant because this um, ballet director is kind of blaming his dogs for health for his behavior. He said um, that uh, he felt under pressure to create a masterpiece because uh, his mother was ill and his dog, 14 and a half years old, was coming to the end of his life. Quote, I was always thinking, do I have to carry him back to Germany in a plastic bag? Which is, of course, very sad and very stressful. But hopefully that doesn't uh, encourage you to, I mean, it's kind of shameful that then you use him, you turn him into an accomplice by using his feces in this crime. So he's been fired. Uh, but he wonders, he said, if I'd been a woman and the critic, a man, this would be seen differently. Now I'm not sure. Oh I'm not sure if that's true. I think maybe oh my God. even a woman smearing a man with feces, dog feces would have gotten in trouble. Yeah. Sorry, buddy. You can't try to like play a, like a yeah, identity politics card. feminist card here, uh, to try to get out of smearing someone's face with dog feces. I do think there is one answer to all this, though. We need to see a new dance piece featuring this choreographer and the critic, and he can choreo- he can choreograph a dance piece based around their experience, and yeah, they can perform true. it together. I think that would be really poignant. Get the dog in there, too. Get the dog in there. They yes, can do, yes. like, you know, a dirty dancing when Patrick Swayze lifts up Jennifer Grey. She comes running down and goes yeah. like that, you know, lifts her up in his arms. Like He could do that with the dog. That would be powerful. That would a be great powerful. way to immortalize the dog. As opposed yeah. to immortalizing him in a news story where his feces is used. I'm sure yes. he was really upset, the dog. Like, don't weaponize my poor health. Take Gustav's name out of your mouth. What a story. Wow. Yeah. Pretty terrible, huh? Yeah. We are so excited to be talking to David Sirota. He is the founder and editor-in-chief of The Lever News. He also uh, was the co-creator of the Oscar-nominated film don't look up the narrator, the narrator of the amazing meltdown podcast. He is a columnist at Jacobin and the guardian. Please follow his work. David Sirota on Twitter. Please follow the lever. Their work on Twitter is lever news and make sure you go to levernews.com. Be a lover of the lever. Yeah. Be a lover of the lever. Yeah. Or the lever who knows. Yeah. And as you'll see his, their reporting really has caused quite a, uh, an uproar from haters, but it's also prompted action from politicians, which is what you in theory want from the media. All right, let's go to David Sirota. Welcome back, David Sirota. Thanks for having me. 
Of course. You have been uh, really important. You and, and The Lever, your your website, have been really important in actually covering the derailment that happened in East Palestine, Ohio. Can you set up where we are, uh, where you guys are in your investigation in terms of what happened? Yeah, I mean, what we did was we we didn't look at exactly uh, the disaster in East Palestine. We looked up, we, we looked at, and we reported out the regulatory conditions that exist that that a lot of folks uh, say culminated uh, in the disaster in East Palestine and culminated in more than a thousand derailments now every year in the United States. And uh, we do this kind of reporting because we believe that people who made those decisions have to be held accountable because to hold those folks accountable is to create the conditions to fix those policies. So what what were some of the policies that were in place regulatorily before this derailment? And and the answer is, is that actually we're living through in some ways the second cycle of derailment disasters and, and debates. But if you rewind the tape about a decade ago, uh, there were a series of very high profile uh, derailments with um, freight trains and the like. Uh, one of them was very deadly. One up in Canada was, uh, I think it was 40 plus people were killed. Uh, there was a terrible uh, derailment and train leak in um, in New Jersey dealing with the same chemical at issue in Ohio. And that was about, again, about a decade ago. And that ultimately prompted the Obama administration to consider new regulations uh, when it comes to uh, trains carrying hazardous material. Uh, And the Obama administration, to their credit, began a process of of at least uh, acknowledging the problem and putting forward rules to deal with some of the problem. Now, I want to underscore the word some, because what ended up happening in that process was when the regulators went out and said, hey, Pay the general public and experts. What do you? What kind of regulations do you think we need to need to have here? Uh, the National Transportation Safety Board came back to the Obama administration and said, "Listen, you need to have these regulations cover a broad sweep of uh, hazardous materials, including Class Two, what's known as Class Two chemicals." And I say that because vinyl chloride, the chemical at issue in Ohio in, the, in that derailment, was vinyl chloride. Uh, and then the chemical lobby went to the Obama administration and said, no, 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 no. These, these materials should not be covered by this rule. Uh, the rules should mostly be for crude oil and ethanol. And the Obama administration ended up siding with the chemical industry uh, and its lobbyists in narrowing the rules, the new rules to deal with ha- ha- high hazard flammable trains. That's a technical term. Narrowing the rules so that the train in Ohio, as an example, was not covered by those rules. So so I just want to flash forward for a second. We'll get to Donald Trump in in a sec. But but to flash forward for a minute, you've heard some Democrats and some sort of defenders of the Democratic Party say, hey, uh, the the rules uh, would not have covered uh, this train. and you've seen you've seen some Republicans say that, you know, the the rules dealing with brakes would not have covered this train. And all of that is true, but you have to provide the context for that. They would not have covered the train in question because the Obama administration made a decision to ignore the NTSB and side with the chemical industry. 
That is all documented. That's not speculation. That's not a, an extrapolation. That is literally what happened. Now, just to go back to that era, it is also true, as we reported, that after some rules were put in place, even those narrowed rules, in those narrowed rules, there were mandates for a better braking system, electronic brakes, uh, that would have applied to at least the trains that that limited rule would have covered primarily oil trains. But the importance of that is that it was part of an effort to get the rail industry writ large to start uh, using these brakes in a kind of industry standard way. So those were still important to what we're talking about vis-a-vis -vis the Ohio derailment, because what ended up happening in 2017, after about six million bucks from the rail industry poured into Republican campaign coffers, Donald Trump came in and repealed the limited break rule that still existed, basically taking away a mandate for the industry to start using these kinds of breaks in a more universal fashion on the nation's railways. Uh, so you have heard a lot of Democrats, and I think rightly so, say Donald Trump did repeal break rules. Uh, and we have on record a former federal uh, safety official saying that breaks like the ones we're talking about uh, could have potentially mitigated the damage in this disaster uh, and certainly uh, can mitigate uh, other uh, damages in other derailments. I think the thing I'm trying to get at here is that what's annoying to me in the coverage, and I'm thrilled that our coverage has really driven the driven how this is talked about, but you still see a kind of uh, dishonest way this is being talked about on both sides. That the, 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 that folks who are trying to defend Donald Trump will say, you know, these rules wouldn't have covered uh, uh, th this train, uh, but they don't want to talk about Donald Trump repealing the break rules. And you see Democrats saying Donald Trump repealed the break rules, and they don't want to talk about how the Obama administration made a deliberate decision to ignore the NTSB inside with chemical lobbies. The, the truth of this story is that this was a bipartisan effort or a set of bipartisan decisions uh, to allow the rail industry, the chemical industry and other industries to uh, avoid the safety regulations that needed to be put in place. And of course, the, the final thing that should be said on this is that the Biden administration up until now, has not tried to expand the definition of high-hazard flammable trains to cover trains like the ones in Ohio. It has not tried to resurrect the break rule. So it truly is, this, tr this story truly does span three presidential administrations. So I wanted to ask you if you could react to um, a clip from Fox News, because I think it sheds uh, some light into the way that this is being politicized by people. And, you know, certain people are being blamed by certain people. Other people aren't being blamed by other people. And you can see in this clip the way people are kind of narrowing their focus of blame according to their political ideology. So we're going to hear from uh, some people on this Fox News panel, including Rich Lowry from the National Review um, and Juan Williams. We are back now with our panel. I want to play also something from the EPA administrator who walked around there with people showed up. Here's what he said. I am asking that they trust uh, the government, uh, and that's hard. We know that there is a, a lack of trust. 
Yeah, Peggy, a lot of people do not want to trust the government at any level um, when they're caught in the middle of this situation and a lot of conflicting information. That's right. It's a difficult situation and people are crying out for transparency. They're crying out for help and also they're crying out for accountability from the company itself. We've reported that we think the company could face up to 100 million in liabilities. This is a long road ahead for this town and for making sure that these large rail operations across the U.S. are safe and up to date. And as Lucas mentioned there, we have this tweet from Donald Trump Jr. On Friday, he said, breaking news, Trump will visit East Palestine, Ohio next week. If our, quote, leaders are too afraid to actually lead, real leaders will step up and fill the void. Um, Michael, a, a brilliant idea or a terrible idea? I think it's a good idea. I believe that President Biden and others ought to flood the zone themselves, not be trying to run away from the issue by just saying it's all the fault of the railroad or it's all the fault of state officials. I think politicians from George Bush having to deal with Katrina to President Obama with the BP oil spill just need to realize it's going to come their way sooner or later, and they might as well get on the scene and say, we're listening and we're trying to help. That's what that's just mystifying about Pete Buttigieg's response to this. That That's Disaster response 101, yeah. put on your boots, put on your windbreaker, go there and, mm -hmm. and walk around. And it took him 10 days to even to make a statement about it. And now he's so, trying to tweet his way out of the controversy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but let me well, just say, Trump going to the crash site, my goodness. Talk about no having your cake and eating it, too. He was with Norfolk Southern and the other big railroads and saying, no, we don't need to update the braking systems. Uh, that's an additional cost on business and not fair. And now he's going to the site. And say, oh, yeah, you know, I was against regulation and protecting people, but now I'm with the people. What kind of hypocrisy? I mean, this but is the, wild. The, so, so far, I mean, we need to learn more, but the indications are this was not a braking issue. It was an axle overheating, which is the yeah. reason the trail but train derailed. Plus, freight rail is, we shouldn't be just, you know, get a misimpression from this terrible accident, but these sort of accidents are extremely rare. Freight rail is safer than it was 20 years ago. And if you make it uneconomical to do it by rail, you're going to get it in trucks on the roads, which is, uh, believe me, a worse answer. Well, I think regulation, government has a key role to play in terms of regulating roads, but also rails. And the Obama administration said we need to have safe rails, better braking system, more people. We recently had a rail strike in this country or a threat of a rail strike because the unions were saying we need more people, more vacations. We need more safety. We need these brakes. There's no indication the, that these trains are, are less safe than they were. It's just the, well, the explosions. Eager to blame Buttigieg, which is fine, but they are some of them like Rich Lowry, not surprisingly from the National Review, is making trying to make the case that this is not about regulation, that uh, railways are safer than they were before. If you make it expensive to make the railway safe, you're going to have uh, accidents on the roads, et cetera. Look, I, I, I think it's ridiculous. I mean, how, how can you look at this disaster? How can you look at a thousand derailments and say uh, we don't need better safety regulations uh, when safety experts? I mean, I keep going back to this. The National Transportation Safety Board is the independent agency that focuses solely on safety. Nobody has kind of indicted their credibility at all. That is the authority. The authority said that the definition of high hazard flammable train should be expansive to cover the kinds of chemicals on the Ohio train. Those, uh, th th those recommendations were ignored. What would those recommendations have meant they, if they were put into the rule, if they became mandates? They would have meant, for instance, that tank cars are better constructed, more fortified uh, so that they don't leak and or explode. 
they would have mandated uh, more um, uh, the use of these electronic brakes, which, by the way, the industry itself has touted as a way to prevent derailments. Let, let's not forget that. Norfolk Southern itself had been touting electronic brakes as a way to prevent derailments until, of course, the government considered mandating it. And then Norfolk Southern kind of switched switched around. They didn't want a government mandate. So, so the point is, is that the idea that the Ohio disaster means nothing is no commentary on on uh, regulation is just preposterous. I mean, and the idea that this train wasn't a high hazard flammable train is just ridiculous on its face. And, 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 and there's one other point to make here on what a regulation like that would do. It would at least provide first responders in communities across the country uh, the information they need to know to respond to derailments. It was Mike DeWine, the Republican governor of Ohio, who said uh, that it is absurd that this train wasn't classified this way and that uh, emergency uh, uh, first responder organizations, first responder uh, uh, operations, when they were responding to this, they didn't have the information to know what even they were responding to, which is very important, especially when it comes to hazardous chemicals, because some chemicals, if there's a fire, if you put water on it or whatever, it, it, it can make the fire worse. So the idea that the first responders weren't even required to know what was on the train because there, because the regulations were not in place, that is just re- ridiculous. This is clearly what happened in in Ohio. Is clearly a commentary on what happens when all you do when it comes to safety regulations is listen to uh, chemical industry lobbyists and rail industry lobbyists who are primarily concerned with cutting costs and making profits, not necessarily keeping communities safe. David, what do you make of the response of the company involved here, uh, Norfolk Southern, so far? I mean, for, I mean, it, it's it's uh, it's upsetting, but I'm not surprised. I mean, the, their first response was we're going to give twenty five thousand dollars to the community. Their next their next response was we're going to give everyone a thousand dollar inconvenience check or or convenience check. I think they they called it. Uh, the, the company uh, didn't show up to the town hall meeting uh, in in the town. The company behaved like a rapacious for-profit company that has cut its workforce to the bone despite safety warnings, that has lobbied against safety regulations, all while spending tons of money, billions of dollars on buybacks. The company has behaved like a company like that you would expect to behave. And I think the reason why our reporting has focused on the the governmental decisions in the lead up to this is because I basically presume that a for-profit company like that will do everything in its power that it is allowed to do. It will trample everything, the safety, uh, the environment, the community, because it is playing inside a, a, of a set of rules. And so I always, when, I, when something like this happened, happens, I, I take a look at, well, what, who created the rules? Who allowed the rules uh, to allow a company? to behave like this. To me, that's the most important question now. How do we put in place rules right now, moving forward, so that companies like Norfolk Southern, which don't care about anything other than making as much money as possible, how do we put in place rules so that a company like that has to actually behave in a way that 
doesn't run roughshod over every other public priority, the environment, public safety, and the community. And what about Pete Buttigieg's response? Uh, in fact, we have a clip for, of him appearing on George Stephanopoulos' show. There were shouts of, where's Pete Buttigieg at a town hall meeting last week. Uh, what's your response to that? When are you going to go to East Palestine? Well, I am planning to go, and uh, our folks were on the ground from the first hours. I do want to stress that the NTSB needs to be able to do its work independently. But when I go, the focus is going to be on action. Look, I was mayor of my hometown for eight years. We dealt with a lot of disasters, natural and human. And one of the things I noticed very quickly is that there's two kinds of people who show up when you have that kind of disaster experience. People who are there because they have a specific job to do and are there to get something done and people who are there to look good and have their picture taken when i go it will be about action on rail safety look my my response to to pete Buttigieg is uh, that it's good that he's now admitting he has power but i think there is a big there's a lesson here about how to actually get people to 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 do their jobs let's rewind the tape two weeks ago two and a half weeks ago pete Buttigieg was silent on the Ohio derailment. So was, by the way, President Biden, completely silent. Uh, we published our story. Uh, our story went totally viral. And I'm happy that our story went viral and prompted a lot of pressure on Pete Buttigieg to, to do something. His first reaction to that pressure was that he didn't have any power or much of any power to do much of anything on, on his own as Secretary of Transportation, which is nonsense. The Department of Transportation is putting forward and passing uh, rules all the time, using authority under existing uh, law to do that. The pressure continued to build. And Pete Buttigieg only yesterday, finally, belatedly, came out and said, yeah, I actually do have power to do things. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to revisit. I'm going to our rulemaking in our rulemaking process. We're going to revisit the definition of high hazard flammable train. We're going to revisit the, uh, the electronic braking rule. And I think the the lesson there is, is that there were a lot of people saying, don't pressure Pete Buttigieg. You know, you're bad to criticize Pete Buttigieg. Let's, let's criticize only Donald Trump. And I think what we've just seen is actually the, the opposite is true, that Pete Buttigieg and really any politician probably won't do much of anything unless they face relentless pressure. So I am happy that Pete Buttigieg is now saying these things and is making some relatively specific promises about how he is going to use his authority under existing law and how he is going to pressure Congress to give to, to do other things uh, that that need to be done. That's great. But it's going to take a lot of pressure to force him to follow through. This is not a guy whose uh, sort of political pedigree is pushing powerful industries around. He comes from McKinsey. That's the opposite of what they do. So he is begrudgingly and belatedly now uh, forced by political pressure into uh, this posture. And I, I guess my point is, is that that's exactly how I expected it to go in the sense that he that he as an emblem, emblematic of most politicians won't do anything unless they feel forced to do something and that this is a lesson that anytime something like this happens if somebody's first response is to defend politicians and defend 
the people who made decisions that led to something like this. That's the wrong and really a kind of corrupt reaction. The, the proper reaction is something happens and the public goes to its representatives and says, you must do better. You must do specific things to fix this and prevent this from happening again. And so I think that's what we're seeing here. And it's a lesson that goes way beyond this one specific situation. And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. Well, David, uh, you've been gener- so generous with your time and we know how much reporting you're doing. Anything else you want to tell people that you're up to or the lever's up to? No, I would just tell folks to follow our reporting. Go sign up at our, our website, levernews.com and, and, and become a subscriber. We, we're going to continue to cover this story. And more generally, we're going to continue to hold politicians accountable, regardless of which party they are in. And, and I guess the last thing I will say is I hope the takeaway, the large takeaway from this is that politicians will only do things when they are under relentless pressure. Uh, politicians concede nothing without a demand. The If you see a thing like this happen in the future, a thing like this that is tied to policy decisions, your first impulse should be to hold accountable the politicians who made that decision, uh, not to defend those politicians. My hope is that this is an inflection point uh, where people see this situation and say, you know, rail safety specifically needs to be improved. And that other kinds of things like this that clearly need to be improved. When things go wrong, we have to not just defend politicians in our preferred party. We have to hold them accountable. That's my hope. Thank you so much. Thanks to both of you. Such a great interview. He's a great speaker. Great speaker, great journalist, and uh, very grateful for all the work he does. And it's always, you can always tell that you're on the right track when you're being disingenuously attacked by corporate journalists, which is exactly what David Sirota and the lever, the lever, have uh, faced. And so kudos to them for all the work they do. And make sure you subscribe to us at uh, usefulidiots.subdeck.com or usefulidiots.locals.com because we have a really great discussion with David about certain journalists and a certain journalist at a certain outlet who really embarrassed himself by obviously being a uh, a tool for, we're saying this, not David, but the, the guy clearly is trying to suck up to Pete Buttigieg. So we dissect that and it's a great discussion. We really could change the name of this show to Tool Talk or Tool Time because there's always tool a tool. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. 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 Welcome to the tool shed. Yeah. Where we put the tools in the shed. All right, everyone, usefulidiots.substack.com. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next week. Great. Bye, everyone. Hello. Thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. 